VI Shots Podcast, episode 16. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of VI Shots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis, and this is a podcast devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With this episode, I bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas for how you can take your LabVIEW development to the next level. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the VI Shots podcast. I'm very excited today because I have a very special guest on the show. Um, This guest has written several LabVIEW-related books, uh, Internet Applications in LabVIEW, LabVIEW for Everyone, first, second, and third edition. Uh, The third edition he co-authored with Jim Kring. Uh, He's released several open-source LabVIEW tools, such as LabVNC, LabSQL, LabPerl, and has had a very successful engineering business, uh, Jeffrey Travis Studios, uh, developing LabVIEW-based automation systems. Over the years, he's transitioned to a radically different career uh, in the filmmaking industry. There, he's continued his success with several short films, one of them being What's Wrong With This Picture, which is an award-winning um, short film, uh, Flatland the Movie, which is based on a science fiction novel. Uh, but just recently, uh, he's directed an independent film called Dragon Day. Um, and this film has stirred up a little bit of controversy um, in, the, in the Hollywood circles, but uh, we're very excited to have Jeffrey Travis here. Uh, Jeffrey, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. So, Jeffrey, uh, let's start off uh, with kind of the the most important uh, thing that uh, you're here to talk about, which is Dragon Day. And um, right now you have Dragon Day posted on Indiegogo, and uh, you're looking for some funding. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, so Dragon Day is an independent uh, feature-length film that we shot on a, a micro-budget and... Uh, uh, the film has actually already been shot. It's in the can. It's it's uh, uh, gone through a lot of editing, and we're uh, raising uh, what we call finishing funds on Indiegogo. And uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with Indiegogo, it's a crowd. What's called a crowdfunding site. Uh, Kickstarter is, is sort of its uh, competitor, companion, and uh, basically it's a way to allow people to see the trailer for the film, learn more about it, and uh, because it's a completely independent film that's not financed by any Hollywood studio. It allows folks to contribute financially to the success of the movie um, and obtain some perks in return. So, um, they, you know, we can take anything from $5 to $5,000 and uh, you know, offer things like DVDs and uh, signed posters all the way to associate producer credit on the film. And uh, it's, it's in recent years become a great way to uh, just allow films to find also uh, an audience and a fan base and, and uh, have sort of a community involvement in, in seeing a film succeed. So, And uh, it looks like you're looking for 50,000 50, and, and as, as your goal. You've, uh, you've only reached 15K so far. Uh, we have about two weeks left, and so I'm encouraging everyone to, after they watch this, this after they listen to this podcast, uh, or maybe right now, just pause it and, and go contribute, and then uh, unpause it and come back and listen. Can you talk about the sort of the the story behind Dragon Day and, and what, what the basic premise is? So Dragon Day is a film, uh, it's essentially about a family trying to uh, survive after the United States is uh, nearly destroyed through a massive cyber attack um, uh, from China. And the scenario is that it's in the near future uh, it, where uh, the United States defaults on its uh, uh, national debt. And uh, China, China's uh, been prepared for this and has decided to um, 
and plant um, some secret uh, viruses and have a coordinate cyber attack. And every single microchip made in China um, is carrying some sort of dormant um, virus or system. And so in one day, they, they shut down uh, all of our power. Every plane that's in the air falls out of the sky. Uh, you know, the water systems get shut off. And it's sort of an invasion without any uh, soldiers, um, you know, cyber Pearl Harbor, as you will. And so the story focuses on this one uh, American family that's in a small mountain town. Our main character, Duke Evans, is a engineer who uh, was laid off, used to work for the NSA. And he has some inkling of what's going on and what's happening. And he knows that they only have a few days to uh, get to a, a safe bunker um, before sort of the breakdown of law and order is going to uh, make it very difficult for them to survive in the, the new society. So uh, I made this film to sort of explore a couple of just ideas and, and uh, fears of mine. You know, what, two, about three years ago, as I was contemplating the script for this, uh, you know, I was I'd grown more and more concerned about the amount of debt that our country had taken. And the more I researched it and read about it, uh, you know, the more I became convinced that it, it just was this almost unsurmountable problem, you know, regardless of what our current politicians and the two candidates are saying, um, you know, th- th- there's really almost no good answers for how this debt will ever get paid off. And I, I grew up in Argentina, uh, where, you know, I lived during a period of hyperinflation down there and saw kind of firsthand some of the effects of a currency breakdown. So that mingled with sort of this fun sci-fi idea that is not too far-fetched from reality um, about cyber warfare. And I kind of put those two ideas together and imagine a scenario where all that might play out. It sounds very interesting. Um, so a lot of, uh, I mean, people would say, well, aren't you just, you know, fear-mongering and, you know, playing on, on everybody's fears. But uh, I think there's a lot of truth uh, in, in this, isn't there? There is, you know, and and I'll say two things. One is I, I wanted to make the film fairly truthful and realistic. I didn't want to kind of try to worry about being politically correct or, or uh, um, you know, just sort of uh, being overly cautious. And uh, I, I knew that, that, you know, kind of naming China as, as, as a specific country in a script of the tactics would be somewhat controversial. Um, but I also knew that, you know, that's kind of acknowledging a reality that a lot of, that is on a lot of people's minds and, and uh, you know, in a kind of imagining a future, futuristic military conflict, what that might actually look like, what countries would it be like? Um, you know, I think in the growing up in the eighties, watching all these movies, you know, we were kind of never afraid to look at scenarios of say cold war movies, you know, where it was the Soviets. And so my idea is like, well, who would be, who might be our biggest threat to the U S in a scenario like this? Now, having said that, obviously I have nothing against, uh, Chinese people or China itself. I've been to the country. It's a, it's an amazing, beautiful country. Um, we had a lot of, uh, several Chinese Americans that worked on the film. And I think that people seeing the movie are going to be very surprised because they're going to see that we don't actually, uh, see that the biggest enemy is China, but the biggest enemy is ourselves, uh, and, and fear and what it, what it will do to people and the choices that we're faced with when, you know, what we're, what we've taken for granted is taken away. So the, the really bad guys in the film are never Chinese in this movie. They, uh, you know, there's some of the local townspeople that uh, decide to take matters into their own hands in an aggressive way. They're actually some of the local law enforcement that uh, take advantage of martial law. And so I kind of wanted to do that a little bit on purpose to sort of draw people in with this, this idea of, you know, uh, the invasion from, from abroad and then sort of realize that we you know, sometimes the biggest danger is is just some of the choices we'll make ourselves. So, uh, in this film, you you say there's uh, there's an engineer type character, and um, I think there's 
probably some LabVIEW making a cameo appearance in this film, is there? Yes, there is. You know, uh, the character is the engineer. He's a, uh, a coder and writes, uh, you know, uh, microchip code. So, you know, LabVIEW would not typically be used for that unless he was in like LabVIEW FPGA. But just for, just for grins and just because I knew that I would enjoy as well as my LabVIEW friends would enjoy, there's a scene very early in the film where we meet our main character working at home and um, as he's at his computer desk with two large monitors, there's uh, some very big block diagrams of LabVIEW open on it. And uh, it was kind of fun because the actor and the cast and crew had, had no idea what that was. And they're like, wow, that looks really cool. What is that? And so <laughs> I, was, I was trying to explain to them uh, what LabVIEW was and actually showing them uh, how this was, this was code. So that's, uh, that was kind of my nod to, to definitely putting LabVIEW in there's a, its cameo appearance. Yeah, and I guess that's probably the first time LabVIEW is on a feature film. <laughs> I'd say it probably is, which would be great. It'd be, it'd be a fun honor to have. I'll also there was some indirect LabVIEW on here, uh, or I would say some LabVIEW engineers that, that helped with the film. I want to uh, kind of give a shout out to uh, Fabiola de la Cueva and uh, her husband, Luis Orozco. Uh, Fabiola is probably known to some of your listeners as a uh, certified LabVIEW architect and LabVIEW champion. Um, she's worked with me for several years on, on LabVIEW projects. So she and her husband designed the circuitry and built those bracelets that you see in the trailer that have the LED lights, um, you know, that go from green to red when they're about to uh, deactivate a citizen. So um, I don't think they use LabVIEW for it, but they, we had some, some LabVIEW engineers develop the hardware for some of the props. So you mentioned that, um, you know, typical Hollywood films avoid in general uh, in naming specific countries when, you know, you know, there's attacks or, or war that, uh, something like that. Um, did you, did you actually try to, to pitch this film or this idea to sort of a big Hollywood produ- production company? You know, I, I did. I, I, when I wrote the film, I was not necessarily intending to go and try to pitch this as a big movie. I'd, and the reason is that I'd spent the prior four years, uh, having another film that I'd written that was going to be a, a larger Hollywood film that at that time had been um, budgeted and approved. It was going to be released by Sony Pictures. And with the 2008 uh, financial crisis, that fell apart. And so when I first read the script, I said, you know, I'm just going to do this on my own independently. Uh, you know, forget trying to go through the long, drawn-out process of the studio system. However, uh, there was a few folks that heard about the script and idea, and I got invited in to go pitch to a couple of studios. And so I, I did that. And uh, you know they they love the idea. They're like, this is this is a fantastic idea uh, for a film. This is great. Oh, but you can't. It can't be China. Uh, there's there's no way we can do that. We'll uh, you know we get a lot of our money from them, and and they uh, they basically said we can never have a, a villain that is Chinese or uh, uh, you know. And in fact, we have to find a way to put a extremely positive references to China. And I I thought that was kind of curious. You know, I, it, it, to me, this is a recent phenomenon where. We're seeing kind of the a very strong influence. Um, you know, some might call it censorship, maybe financial censorship. Where we have a foreign country sort of, uh, you know, influencing or dictating some of the content of American films, and and I, I don't think that's ever happened before in history. There's a LA Times article that recently explored that and kind of some fascination about how um, because of the financial support from China that some of the content of even the summer blockbuster films uh, has been altered to uh, kind of meet their political, um, I guess, leanings. So uh, so as an independent film, I, I sort of decided to embrace not worrying about that because I knew uh, when it was time to make a bigger film, I might not have that option. Okay, so now let's listen to some sound clips from the Dragon Day movie trailer. 
down the Roman Empire. America has absolutely no intention of repaying China that one trillion dollars. It's still your money, you just can't have it right now. At approximately 6.13 p.m., a determined and coordinated attack on the United States. Our banking system, our military, our cell phone and communication network. Every plane, every GPS unit, they set the clock back 50 years for us. We have to get ready. The next phase will start any second. Welcome, new citizen. See? Curfew boundary violation. Deactivating citizen. I never thought I'd see America like this. country's multi-trillion dollar debt was just going to go away. So that was just a sound excerpt from the uh, movie trailer. You can watch, of course, the whole trailer at uh, dragondaymovie.com. So uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the, uh, some of the talent that's, uh, that's in this production and some of the actors in this, in this movie? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we, we uh, don't have any, obviously, huge A-list actors. You know, this is not a movie with Brad Pitt, uh, but we have some amazing uh, actors, and and uh, I just loved working with these folks. They gave so much to the film, and um, you know, one of the great things about living in Los Angeles is uh, the, just a chance to meet a lot of actors who um, you know either up and coming or have been working for a long time, and uh, are, are you know kind of pour the heart and soul into becoming a character for for an independent film. So Ethan Flower plays uh, Duke Evans, and uh, you know kind of the the strong. Uh, father and engineer who's trying to fight for what's right and, and has to make a lot of kind of moral right or wrong decisions to figure out how he's going to take care of his family. Um, you know, Ethan, you, uh, we'll have seen him in, in some small parts in Die Hard 4. He's also been uh, on Parenthood um, as well as uh, many of the national commercials. Also, uh, Wallach, a Swedish actress, uh, who uh, speaks English perfectly well uh, and plays uh, Leslie Evans's wife in the film. And uh, this is my third film to work with Osa on. She's been in uh, a short film of mine as well as uh, some commercials for John Deere that I shot a while back. Um, she's just uh, an amazing actress, I think. Uh, uh, reminds me of a, kind of a, a Naomi Watts in a lot of ways. She uh, has um, also been on like 90210, the TV show here. And... Uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, independent films. Jen Gotson plays uh, Duke's sister, Rachel. And uh, Rachel's a fun character. She's uh, you know successful and a lawyer. She's the one you see in the trailer who's driving the Mercedes-Benz convertible that breaks down. Um, and Jen has, has uh, had a fantastic film career lately. She's coming out in no less than, I think, nine movies uh, next year. Uh, she was in the Academy Award-winning film Frost Nixon, that was out a few years ago, played uh, uh, President Nixon's daughter in that film. Um, she's coming out in a film that'll be seen soon called Doonby. Um, so it, then our other actors that I wanted to mention too is Eloy Mendez. There's a character named Alonso in the film who plays uh, a Mexican illegal immigrant who is living at the, at the uh, cabin that our family arrives at. And he actually becomes uh, plays an extremely pivotal role in the film as someone who is able to help this family and rescue them with uh, some of the resources that he has 
um, including being able to smuggle them across the border into Mexico when things get really bad. So Eloy Mendes has uh, just been a, a huge pleasure to work with. You know, took on this role um, very believably, and um, he's also be will be coming out in a film called uh, Stealing Las Vegas that's being released this year. And then last but not least, uh, Scoot McNary is an actor who plays uh, Phil um, Phil Snyder, who's the NSA agent that is Duke's boss in the film. And we don't see as much of him. We see him at the beginning and a little more towards the end. I don't want to spoil the film, so I can't say too much about him. But uh, he, Phil, uh, Scoot McNary is actually uh, coming out in two big movies this year. One is called Argo, which I believe releases next week. It's a film with Ben Affleck about the uh, true story about the hostage crisis in Iran. And uh, he's also coming out in a film opposite Brad Pitt uh, called Killing Them Softly. And uh, Scoot in that film plays... Uh, a mobster that uh, Brad Pitt and James Gandolfini have to go after and, and uh, hunt them down. So um, all of these actors were, you know, uh, fun to work with, different in their approaches. I mean, just brought so much to it. And, you know, it's hard to imagine the, the, the film without them uh, bringing these characters to life. <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of us as engineers have these side projects or these side hobbies. And it's like, well, if I leave engineering and do this, will I be successful or, you know, should I leave my, you know, secure income that I'm getting here and, and try, you know, pursuing my passion, pursuing my dream? Um, right, right. It, it's, it's, it appears that you're doing that. Uh, is that correct? Uh, that, that, yeah, you know, for the most part, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think, uh, sometimes it can look a little more rosy <laughs> than it is, um, with, with the, the, you know, the struggles of getting here, but that's true. You know, I, I've been very fortunate in that what was kind of a, originally mostly just a, a hobby and a side interest of mine, filmmaking has, has turned into kind of uh, uh, my primary uh, type of work. And I'll say I, I still continue to this day to have uh, one foot still in the engineering world. I, we still do a little bit of LabVIEW consulting, um, not as much as I used to, but it, it definitely kind of helps in between projects and jobs and, and uh, some of the film projects. So it's, uh, it's a little strange at times kind of being in, in uh, two worlds and having to um, kind of you know, take the helm in between them at times, but, uh, but it's, it's been great. It's been a, a you know, almost a 10 year journey to get to this point. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, if you told me a few years ago, I was going to be living in Hollywood with my family, uh, making films. And, uh, I, it, I, I, you know, I've had a hard time believing that. So I've just been excited and, and feeling very fortunate for the doors that have opened for me. Yeah. I mean, uh, going to your website, Jeffrey Travis studios, you actually have an, uh, an entryway where it's like, do you want to pick software engineering click here do you want to pick filmmaking click here it's like okay that's two totally polar you know opposite topics well you know the the let me comment on that the reason for that you know uh back in 2005 it was i i actually tried to leave the the world of lab unit engineering for good <laughs> and and i spent about two years actually working um you know completely shut down the consulting business uh I was able to raise some funding for my production company, Burning Myth Productions, and uh, it was, uh, you know, taken off very well. We had a fairly large feature film in development, and I, you know, I thought I would never go back. In 2008, with the financial crisis, a lot of that uh, angel and, and uh, venture capital funding kind of came to a halt for a while. So that uh, kind of made me think about doing some, you know, things in on the side. So LabVIEW, in a funny way, kind of started becoming the side thing on the weekends to um, help pay the bills <laughs> as we continue to uh, do the production company. And what's, what's been interesting is that 
the last uh, two or three years, I've actually had the chance to work on some projects that merge these two worlds, uh, strange as it may seem. So we're doing been doing some projects for some clients like uh, Chevron and John Deere and that involve um, entertainment as well as uh, labby automation. We've been building some motion simulator games that uh, involve, uh, in some cases, shooting uh, video and actors and developing a 3D video game out of that and then allowing uh, a player to sit on a, a seat with uh, two or three degrees of freedom uh, motion systems that uh, LabVIEW will control um, and uh, interact with this game. And so it's kind of it's kind of fun for me to kind of bring, uh, you know, both uh, the geeky engineering approach to this and, and some of the creative uh, entertainment aspects to this. And, and I'm having a blast with doing some of those projects, even as I continue to work on my films. So, I mean, when, when you're developing a LabVIEW project, there's there's various stages. There's a design phase, you know, planning it out and then implementation and then, you know, shipping it and all that. Right. I, I would feel that that's kind of a similar, maybe not exact, but a similar kind of skeleton structure for making a film, right? That, that's right. Yeah, there, there's definitely some very defined phases and, and similar to software development, you know, that the, what we would call the sort of design and, and brainstorming phase and, and the filmic world is what we call development, um, which which is different than software development. Uh, development is actually the very earliest stage of the filmmaking process. And that usually refers to working with a story or material. In some cases, uh, if there's already an existing screenplay, it means continuing to rewrite it and refine it until uh, it's as good as possible. Um, in some cases, it may be taking a book or some other property uh, and, and creating a screenplay out of that, like we did with Flatland. Um, and then the next phase is uh, once, once sort of the screenplay is, is locked and said, this is, you know, this is the movie we're going to make on paper, um, you know, we, there's the pre-production phase, which is a lot of uh, intense preparation for filming. And, and then there's the production phase, which is uh, when we actually film the movie. And then lastly, there's post-production and, and what's interesting is that most people, when they think of making a movie, they, they usually picture in their mind the production phase, you know, when you have the cameras out and, and the slate and we're calling action and cut. And, and you know, that's definitely the, the, the very kind of a fun, uh, glamorous, uh, you know, sort of uh, part of filmmaking that people think about. It's actually the shortest uh, part in the process. Uh, the production phase, you know, will often not be any more than three or four weeks, sometimes a little longer than that. And pre-production and post-production can easily last months, if not, you know, over a year. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, there's definitely some similarities to the software development process. So, so from the time where you actually finished um, production, where I mean, uh, I guess, filming uh, to right now, what, what, how, was, what, how long was that? Well, on Dragon Day, we, we actually, we actually shot the movie two years ago, believe it or not. So we, oh, wow. we filmed <laughs> right. We filmed in the summer of 2010 and uh, we started going into post-production that we wrapped in September 9th, 2010. Now, uh, you know, the, the reason for the reason it's, it's been two years is, is um, it's not uncommon at all for an independent film like this to take two to three years to get made. Uh, that's about an average time cycle. And part of the reason for that is when you're working on uh, a micro budget like we are in, uh, you know, when we say micro budget, we're, you know, usually referring to, uh, you know, low six figures or even five figures for a budget as opposed to, you know, millions of dollars for a Hollywood budget. You're sort of trading time for money. Um, and so uh, a lot of the people that worked on this film, including some of the people in the post, they're, they're basically donating their services or working on a deferred uh, basis. And, you know, it's, uh, what that means is that you know you you have people's time in between their other uh, paying jobs. Uh, so, for example, our editor 
uh, you know, edits some uh, well-known TV shows and, uh, he, you know, in between his projects, he'll, he would take a week or two to work on Dragon Day and, uh, or work on the weekend. Um, and so that's, that's part of the reason that the process takes so long. If you're, if you have a, a Hollywood budget, then you can hire people full time from beginning to end. Um, but of course that becomes a much more, uh, cash expensive process. So. Interesting. So those, these are some of the challenges, I guess, with, with de- developing an independent film, right? They are, they are indeed, you know, and, and it's, it's sometimes frustrating. Uh, but I think, uh, one of the biggest virtues you need as an independent filmmaker is just to have a lot of patience. And, uh, um, I, I will say that it's, it's definitely, uh, fun to be at this stage where we're at, where, you know, the movie is, is very close to being done. And, and after kind of this long gestation period, you know, it's, it's almost, uh, uh, you know, getting close to to share with the world when once we get these final visual effects in and the music and sound. So um, it's, uh, but yeah, it definitely takes a lot of patience. And I think in some ways it's it's good not to think too lot too much about how long it's going to take when you when you go into it. I think uh, I find that when I work on a movie, I you know get so involved with the creative process, I just uh, you know I'm having so much fun with it and and putting passion into. I kind of lose track of time, and so before you know it, several weeks or months have gone by and. And uh, people are like, "When's the movie coming out?" But uh, once it comes out, everybody forgets about it. That's that's the funny thing. You you screen the film, and and uh, for an audience, it you know it feels so fresh and new. And uh, as a director, thinking, you know, gosh, we shot this years ago. So <laughs> it's uh, and for the actors, it's it's a strange thing too to sort of relive the the past uh, two or three years later when when it's having its premiere. Describe a little bit about the the transition in from the Austin to the Hollywood environment, and uh, you know. Uh, you know, it's an interesting transition. I I loved living. I lived in Austin for a very long time. I, I went to school there, University of Texas, and uh, met my wife there. And you know, started raising our family in Austin. Um, and then I guess about three years ago, uh, kind of found myself at a place where I'd been making so many trips to LA for meetings. Uh, when back when we were doing, a, I was doing a pilot for 20th Century Fox, fly out here, and then convince them to let us shoot it back in Austin. Um, at the time, about three years ago, I was on the verge of making another film uh, that was called The Beautiful Letdown. And that film uh, was going to be shot in L.A. Uh, it had a production company that was based in L.A. Sony Classics was going to release the film. All the actors were in L.A. And it sort of got to the point where I looked at my wife and said, look, you know, I'm, if we're going to go, if I'm going to go off and spend six or nine months there, it's, it's just going to be, uh, maybe this is the time to take the leap. So, so she agreed and and we kind of took the leap of faith and uh, sold our house in Austin and, and moved out here. Um, the funny thing is, after a month after we got here, that that film fell apart. Fell, and uh, uh, that's when the Dragon Day uh, began. But we really, I haven't looked back. It's it's been um, it's it's definitely a, you know a higher cost of living in L.A. Um, there's a lot more, uh, I guess I would say. Um, noise in some ways here but also in terms of being a filmmaker i think every filmmaker needs to spend some time out here uh you know this is this is sort of the heart and and soul of where uh you know uh, filmmaking began and where films are made and i think independent films really can be made anywhere all over the country but uh the the resources that you have in la you know it's really just magnitudes of order larger than uh other places uh access to actors and production companies and uh film crews um, there's just there's just a lot here, and although we could have filmed Dragon Day in other places for the budget that we did it on, I I don't know that we could have done it the way it came out unless we shot it uh, outside of LA. So you mentioned um, so you mentioned that you uh, were born in Argentina, you you immigrated to the U.S. Um, could you ever imagine that you'd be doing this? <laughs> well, you know the fu- 
oddly enough, when I was when I was a young uh, boy, I did I did imagine it. It sounds sounds a little you know strange uh, and 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 not sounding. I don't mean to sound presumptuous anyway, but I, <laughs> I actually remember as as a kid, and I found this like writing ideas for movies when I was about seven or eight years old. I'd write all these scripts, and you know at the time I'd heard about a friend of a friend that had this thing called a VHS camera, you know, that was like a small suitcase you would carry around with a little. And I was, I was working, I was just wishing so badly I could get a hold of that camera and, and make these films. So uh, it's interesting to see those, those uh, kind of ideas and dreams were kind of put on hold for, I guess, the next two decades and uh, ended up uh, kind of coming back. So it's, it's fun to, you know, I, I think that the lesson for me learned is, you know, if you, if you really believe in a dream and, strong enough i I think uh you know go for it uh, you just it's better better to have tried and not have the regret than than always be wondering what if I think that's a a great closing sentence to an interview <laughs> um uh Jeffrey, I'd like to thank you for spending your time with me today and uh, talking about dragon day and uh, uh where can people uh let's let's remind people again about uh, how they can help and also where they can get connected with dragon day sure. So if, if you go to Indiegogo.com slash Dragon, uh, that's where you can see the trailer for the film. You can see a small interview with the actors, myself, and the producer of the film. Um, you can see some of the perks that we're offering, things like ringtones from the movie, DVDs, Blu-rays, posters, uh, you know, other bigger ways to get involved with the film where you can even come out to Hollywood and we'll take you out to one of the studios to have lunch with the actors. Um, you'll see the trailer there. We also have a website called dragondaymovie.com and that also has the links to our Indiegogo site as well as tells you a little more about the film. And so if you, and lastly, but not least, I would encourage all of our listeners who are interested in the film to go to our Facebook page and like our Facebook page. That's kind of the best way to sort of keep up with uh, what's happening with the film. You'll you know learn about when it's being released can track its progress. And so that's at facebook.com slash dragonday or just, just search for Dragon Day on Facebook. And I like uh, on the Facebook page where you guys are constantly posting uh, links to articles and other websites that kind of emphasize this uh, this the cyber threat as well, which is kind of cool. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, involvement on Facebook. We've been posting some uh, poster ideas for the film, and what's been fun is that you know as we sketch up these poster ideas, uh, we put them out and on Facebook, and people will comment on them, and it sort of gives folks a chance to you know be part of really. Uh, saying what the what they think the poster maybe should look like so okay jeffrey well thanks again all right well thank you michael so much for having me really appreciate it and thank you everyone for listening to this episode if you like what you hear please uh, go to itunes and give us a positive review a five-star rating would be awesome and also visit our website website at vishots.com and uh, look for the links to all the uh, topics mentioned in this episode and also comment and post on there as well to continue the discussion. We also have a Facebook page, so please go and like that and uh, follow us on Twitter. Thank you very much and bye for now. Bye.